to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast for three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is I don't know what is that one. That is, of course, DM Dave, the rock and roll DM. You know him from his from his velvet pipes. That's uh, in dreams by Roy Orbison. Ah, ah, the great Roy. That was a beautiful description of the candy colored clown they call the Sandman. So absolutely, absolutely, and okay. So here's and and then so so that's why you chose that for this edition of Three Wise DMs, where today we are talking about setting scene. The storytelling tricks, the mechanical tricks that we use to try to give the settings we're playing in a sense of environment, a sense of, you know, an emotional feel, a soul, essentially. Try to how we put the soul in our in our campaign settings. And you're right, that description of the clown is beautiful. That that's that's absolutely something that's gonna stick with your players. Yeah, that was the same song in the movie Blue Velvet with Dennis Hopper, where he would make the guy play that song before he then, I think, beat people mercilessly to death almost. I think it was, <laughs> it was David Lynch. It fits, so it fits the style do? of our games very well. <laughs> yeah, that actually, yes, this is really lining up to be a great D&D song. I mean, <laughs> that's the soundtrack to any clown beating. And if you haven't had a clown beating campaign, you should. I mean, yeah, clowns clowns are terrifying. You know, I don't know, killer clowns from outer space, killer clowns from under the mountain, whatever. You know, killer clowns from the Feywild, killer clowns from the Underdark. It all works. <laughs> yeah, the sewers it, are boring. I mean, why the sewers? You'd be having for the Feywild. That's absolutely right. Well, you didn't know about the long drow tradition of mummery and clowning. You know, they, 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 you didn't know. You never heard of the drow clown schools. That's, that's terrifying. That's why all the drow in my campaigns all are French. So they're all French <laughs> existentialists. Oh, we. Oui. <laughs> I thought they'd be bohemians, but okay, I'm getting off topic. Right now, you guys will never go into the underdark. <laughs> like, fuck that place. Ah, we're going. No. Bunch of baguettes and fucking. Is, is there an underdark in Barovia? In your version of Barovia? In Barovia, no, no. Barovia is its own thing. But there is the underdark in whatever might happen after Barovia. If there is an after Barovia, we'll see. <laughs> As I've said, I have I have ideas, but we'll see what happens. I'm not sure how Phineas feels about that being a being being someone who spends most of his time in the Feywild. They kind of feel like they're opposites. I don't know. I might just shit can the whole campaign after that and run something completely different. I don't know yet. We'll see. There you go. We got new camp. We got new ideas, new campaigns for <laughs> Wizard campaign. I'm kind of obsessed <laughs> with it. Since we talked about it last week. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, doesn't everybody want to go into the Underdark? It's great. It's just this. Mind shaft death trap. It's yeah, like it's when, an easy way to set set and setting for it, right? Good atmosphere. I like it's like when Dave's brother's like, hey, do you want me to run the Tomb of Annihilation? And I'm like, no, that sounds like a terrible <laughs> idea. Oh, I'm so into that idea, though. I am so into that. I want to run that when adventure's so bad. I do like the idea of having a Tomb of Annihilation where the players come in with a bunch of characters with the understanding that we're going to kill them. And when one of your characters dies, all of a sudden, you may not find out what killed it because you wouldn't know. So you go back in, like you just kind of keep the players keep a running log of the of the all the things that killed them until they figure out how to get through it. 
That's the old school way, right? Like there. you had to play the old fucking Nintendo games. Like you had to right. figure out like the seven levels of how it kills you and which way to jump. And I mean, so we're talking today about scene setting, about yeah. kind of having the the putting that feeling into your campaign and just what do you want the players to feel like when they're playing this game? And that's a great example. You know, the way that 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 that, that death trap dungeon style uh, Tomb of Horrors or Tomb was it Tomb of Annihilation? That's yeah. the updated a, version. Oh, that they, yeah. Yeah, two apartments was the original. Yeah, I mean, just the, I mean, because you don't you think about it's about what do the players and you remember from playing it? Is it do they remember meeting the the the, the, the nice king and queen? Do they remember going and clearing out the goblins? Do they remember stealing something? No, they remember it was a dungeon full of death traps and they spent every second trying not to die. And <laughs> that is that is a campaign. That's the campaign aesthetic right there. That's yeah. what you're going for. You want to have, you know, I, I, I do want to do this. And I, as we're prepping for this episode, I, I look back and I'm like, have I done this successfully in my games? Because you do want every campaign to have that aesthetic, that feel that the players in it know they're in that campaign. It's not interchangeable with the other campaigns they're in, which is for us yeah. where we're playing like five different campaigns right now. It's really important, right? You want them all to feel different. Yeah. Cause you'll start to forget like, wait, who am I in this one again? What What's happening? Yeah. <laughs> now, setting the feel is extremely important because that's kind of like what is the connectivity to having your players involved. They'll be very into your setting and very into their characters, ideally. And you can start that off by making sure that you're very concise with the elements of the description of where they're going to start off with or how this module is going to kick off, but without going too nuts with it. Cause mm. then you could kind of lose the audience. Mm. And it's an interesting place to start. Like, so, so you think part of what's important is making sure you don't go too deep in your initial descriptions. That's one of the things I've kind of learned late in my game back, back in the day I would, when I'm conceptualizing a game, I would sit down with the good old notepad and I would just start writing out all of these descriptive details. And sometimes the players don't need that. I think your real, I think your real sweet spot on an important description for something honestly is about three to five sentences. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, that, it's, it, it, it kind of comes back to some writing advice. Uh, it's advice I like to give, and I feel like it's important. You know, when we write, when we read kind of this great Americana novel type thing, like like all the King's Men or like a lot of Stephen King stuff, they do tend to overload description because that's seen as in in the novel writing world. Traditionally, traditionally, the American style novel is seen as something where you spend a full page describing a chest someone wants to open. That is actually in all the King's Men that happens. There's like a full page description of here is this chest and that kind of thing. While I get why you do it and I get why in some novels it can give you a sense of immersion and really show off your, your frankly, your, your wordcraft. I'm a big believer in the one big detail method of, of description. You pick the one thing you want them to come away with. You hit that thing. You maybe throw some other things in, but you want really it's one detail that tends to make things memorable. You know, there's a lot of surface details like, Oh, they'll remember what race the thing was. They'll remember like, like where it happened generally, but like, you know, whether you're going to hit a color or a smell or an activity it's doing or something, that one detail tends to be what hooks them. And I try to sink that in where I can, you know, just try to pick one thing I want them to remember from what we're talking about here. That's a good point. Thornton. I would, I would say it kind of goes back to some, uh, some of the best advice you actually ever gave. Uh, Cause we have met in our authors group, our writers group. And one of the best things you ever did was you re recommended everyone get, 
Strunken White's elements of style. Mm. The little tiny, you know, 80 page book with all of the rules of this is, you know, these are the things to do to write well, right? So I did, I got it and I read through it and it's great. The biggest thing that I got out of it was, I forget, rule 17 or whatever the hell it was, <laughs> omit unnecessary words. Because we use all of this flowery language and that's awesome, but you want, especially like if we're talking writing nowadays, you want that punchy writing, just it, it hits, boom. Or maybe back in the day, but in like to Tony's point, when you're setting a scene, you can't have this 10 minute monologue because your people have tuned out 30 seconds in and they're already looking at the map or they're talking to they're telling a joke to their friend or whatever. So you need to hit boom, boom, boom. You know, you need to hit that that scene and that setting right off the bat and then allow it to evolve as the campaign evolves, much like everything else, much like character development, much like plot points, you know, to have it be open to be changed if it needs to be. So we're getting a little deep into the how already. Why don't we start by just talking about, though, what does this look like? I mean, so, so you know, what? What do you want to get to? And then we'll kind of come back to the how. But when you're thinking about how you want to set the, 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 the how you want to set the scene for your campaign or, or create that sense of environment, that create that, that sense of the campaign setting, what are you trying to do? Like, how do the players experience that? Well, first of all, we got to discuss location. Uh, and with that, when you're looking at any location, before, say, why don't we look at the things that are my personal, a nemesis of mine, which is a town, uh, I ask myself, <laughs> how often are these players going to be in a ta this town? Because before you start fleshing out the details of the local economy, you want to consider, are these players going to be in here once, twice, every session? These are things that you probably want to kick around first before you start discussing what style of shoes these Arctic people are wearing. But <laughs> and that's important. I mean, if you're in a different place, these you should, if you're in, a, for example, an Arctic village, you want to explain why the houses look different, why their clothing looks different, why their market looks different. What? How is this town going to be different than the one to the south? And that's great. But if you're really going to be in there. For five minutes and you're moving on, time for that broader description. And you know, one of the tips I have, this kind of goes, what I was just saying, that kind of one detail kind of thing. When you're giving description on that kind of thing, I find it's a good idea rather than trying to describe a bunch of buildings in detail, and Tony's goes to what you were saying about keeping it short, try to describe, try to describe the reason they're like that so like in the case of an arctic town it's really cold they don't have access to a lot of trees probably so things are maybe you know a bunch of like whale bones or or, or mammoth bones and and hide or what they're made out of but if, rather than describing a bunch of buildings and how they're individually made where your players might kind of zone zoom, uh, zone out on you try to describe it as you know a sense of the environment you know because the way people build their buildings tends to be a, a, an expression of both the environment they're in and the culture of the people so if you can kind of sum that up a little bit okay this is you know the, 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 this this town is in the middle of you know the the, the 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 frozen tundra their buildings are made of whalebone covered with uh, covered with with caribou hide they're all wearing fur cloaks kind of a kind of a water tribe in uh, avatar kind of aesthetic although they're, they're they use a lot of, uh, of literal igloos there but if you if you can describe that as a function of where they are and like what the environment is and like what the people are then you wind up with something that's relatively tight the players get. Whereas if you describe a bunch of buildings, 
you wind up with something that's loose. The players don't follow it necessarily is what I found. Like, so kind of like, kind of, kind of having that central, I want to convey that we are in this Eskimo ish kind of place or, or this cold Arctic kind of place. And here's how they live there. If you can get that part, you start with like something, like I said, like with the environment up into the buildings and then get them interacting with it. There's, you're going to get better sense of place than if you try to describe a lot of little details in all the buildings they see. Yeah, and I think this also goes back uh, a lot of our stuff. Like we're gonna uh, someday write the 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 big book of the three wise DMs uh, rules advice, and it's gonna be like it's gonna be like five things, right? It's gonna be like number one, <laughs> two, three, four, five, and these in essence like are going to to do everything you need for what you're gonna to help uh, improve your game. But one of them is what are you playing? Because that's gonna very much depend how much am I putting into setting a scene because as tony you said earlier um you know it can just kind of marshmallow out so we kind of forget like what world we're in but if i'm playing my normal high fantasy campaign where i'm just in the forgotten realms or i'm in galarian or i'm in you know uh you know Greyhawk or whatever it might be well then i don't need to put as much in because we all kind of share a similar understanding of what that might be so we just start out, right? Much like in the Strahd campaign, when I had you guys start in the in the um, the town of Fastermel, and what I have as the, the 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 hub is this big city, Fallcrest. That was just, you know, medieval fantasy city. Here we go, and you got a tavern, and you have bards playing, and blah blah blah, whatever. And then, okay, well now we're going to be playing Curse of Strahd, and as you guys enter into Barovia through the Death House and all of this. Well, now your scene and your setting and your atmosphere becomes much more important because you're trying to convey something that's specifically different than, you know, whatever normal D&D type campaign you might run, right? Similar to if you were running, like we were talking about there, the Underdark. That's going to look a lot different than, uh, you know, Middle Earth, let's say, right? Or whatever it might be. So I think some of it is what are you playing and then how much you not, you need to put in to uh, set the scene for that or the you atmosphere. Know, I agree to some extent. Although I think even if I have you in a typical, quote unquote, typical fantasy setting, I really want you to feel a bit about what that setting is. And, you know, it's these are kind of the kind of details you get into. Like when I talk about kind of having like historical details, the reason, and a lot of people, you, we, we post some stuff on our site that's like, hey, here's how they really, you know, did, here's how armor really worked. Here's the kind mm. of equipment they really yeah. used to carry. And there's a lot of people comment, it's a fantasy world, who cares, we never, whatever we want. In no way would I question your ability to do whatever you want in your world. Absolutely. The trick is this. The world's going to feel more real to the players if the things you're doing make internal sense. And having that sense of, well, they did it like this in the medieval ages in our world if you can look at that and understand how those things worked and why those things worked that way, like why they wore armor this way, like armor's actually worn attached to an arming doublet, which is essentially like a bodysuit. Well, mm -hmm. it's not bodysuits. It's a, it's a, the, uh, the upper part in the, in the pants, but it essentially attaches to that as plates that are strapped to you more or less. Well, at least plate armor, other armor doesn't brigadine, which is, um, you know, kind of strips of metal inside of the, inside of like a leather or a linen tunic. Uh, you can put that on yourself. Part of the reason Brigadine is so popular is because you don't need service to put it on. You can just put it on yourself. You strap it up front. You're ready to go. Those little details about how and why armor is chosen and worn, 
help give that world a sense of reality that you don't necessarily get if you don't know these things and you're making something up off the cuff. And there's nothing wrong with making it up off the cuff, but those details add this sense of setting. They add the sense of you're somewhere, your characters are somewhere you're not familiar with. It's a different kind of world. And I think that goes to, even if I'm in a generic fantasy setting, I want to set some of that. Like I want the players to know they're, they're like, you know, walking along kind of muddy streets with, you know, with, with, with horse patties strewn about them. Oh, I want absolutely. the players to know that they have to, you know, sharpen their swords on occasion or like, you know, here, okay, your swords are made by this guy. Cause he's the only guy in the town who can make a sword. The regular blacksmith just does this thing, you know, or, um, you know, when you guys first went to Woodstock, Woodstock, that's that campaign setting that, uh, that, that the Woodstock the 70s were around. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that was the 60s. Geez. Well, I mean, there I, I wanted to set the I wanted to set the tone of two things. One, I wanted to set the tone that it was a world where the powers that be, like the the political powers that be, don't have a ton of control. So I started with the players all getting together in a town of Woodstock that was named that because of essentially the the Mercantile Consortium, which is basically the East India Trading Company in this world. And they started exploring virgin wood that was right next to this very gothic, very medieval kind of place. Uh, set of kingdoms that were always at war and they were bringing in resources from that virgin wood. And I wanted them, and I, I also wanted to be a little weird that, okay, so why do we have this whole huge area over here that's unexplored when this town, and this town's like a frontier town, but it's like right next to a bunch of warring kingdoms. Like those are like little things I wanted to put in there. So the town felt like I want a company town and it felt like there was a lot of war and like things were really being run a little bit out of control. And then the players get into the forest and I want the forest to feel like totally unexplored and no one knows what's going on and no one really knows why no one's no one knows what's in here because it was magic because bottom line, a wizard did it. But those are like the details I kind of I, I wanted to convey in that setting, um, even though it's kind of in some ways generic fantasy. I feel like the devil is definitely in the details in these situations. And I, I'm going to really kind of shift gears here for a second, so I apologize. Um, in the uh, Avengers series of movies, the mm. Russo brothers were given an opportunity to use the character Beta Ray Bill. I don't know who, if any of you guys are familiar with. I'm sure. We should probably, just in, just in case our readers don't, our listeners don't know, you might want to mention who he is. He is the what's horse that? version of Thor, uh, essentially. He's the <laughs> space old, horse version. And what's the cool. Tony? And what is the what is the uh, the weapon he wields? He wields Stormbreaker. So, oh. so with that said, um, Stormbringer being from Mel Benet, let's not get those two things confused, <laughs> those mythologies. But the point is they had an opportunity to use his character in bring him into the mythology of Marvel, and they opted not to. And a lot of people were like, well, why not? He's a great character. Everybody likes this character. You have an opportunity to bring him in. He could add to the story and the mythology. And the reason they didn't go that way was because they didn't feel they could do this character justice. Yeah. It was with the CGI in terms of fitting the character into the plot. And the, the, my, where I'm going with this in terms of location is don't try to do too much in your location that you can't do all that justice to. So, for example, if you want to run Greyhawk, it is basically like the medieval version of Dungeons and Dragons for New York City. Um, in in those terms, you have a population with hundreds of thousands of people, and I feel that a lot more detail needs to go into there to sell that than opposed to you're on a border town that's got what a sheriff, a blacksmith, uh, a mortician, a general store guy. See, that's perfectly believable. A city with 490,000 people in it and high walls and a mage college. 
now you've really got to have all your ducks in a row to really set the environment and bring your uh, your audience into it so they're really feeling that vibe. Yeah, absolutely. I did the uh, so the three different examples. So uh, my Pathfinder campaign I ran, I started them in that world, and I started them in a town called Sandpoint, which is your coastal. You know, not backwater town, but a coastal town. It's not too big. It's not too small. So you can easily start to set that by describing, you know, the the docks and the the sand and the different the, the smaller uh, the smaller types of buildings and you know the large fish economy, <laughs> um, which is very different than when I started with Slavers Bay with Thorns Group because I started it very much as a um, they started in an imperial, um, in essence, infernal regime, which was very different in terms of, it was still a, a coastal town that had been built up in massive ways that now had a large slave economy and stuff, which run very differently than when they started to go outside of the town into things like uh, the, the, the Fork and Thrace, where they were smaller villages or they were little outpost things, right? And then we run up to like Strahd, for instance, where it's it's a it's a very specific type of setting. So yeah, absolutely those descriptions, but you don't have you only need to give as much as, like you said, three to five sentences, but and then only to what are they asking for? It kind of goes to your idea, mm. Tony, of lore tolerance. They're going to tell you exactly what they want to know, and they want to know it for a reason. They don't care what types of timbers they used, unless how flammable are those timblers? Because I'm about to throw a fireball on it or something, right? Whatever it might be, right? <laughs> or, or maybe players want to know where they came from because they're yeah, trying to tell, like, like exactly. they want to sense what's part of the world. But yeah, that's a great point that you let the you start small and let the players ask for details that you fill in is a good is a good way to go about this. They're going to tell you exactly what they care about in terms I, of your architectural history. <laughs> in terms <laughs> of story. Uh, I'm not going to lie. There's been several times where the players have thrown out a hypothesis about where the story was going that I felt was better than what I came up with. And I'm like, that's mine now. I'm covering that like Captain America in the first movie on the fake grenade. And that is mine. As you guys, as you guys might have picked up in our, in our, just our uh, most recent Strahd session uh, in the Amber Temple, I absolutely did that. Uh, because one character made such a goddamn deal about baby Walter. Um, <laughs> I utilize, but I utilize that because of, and we'll get, you know, in the future, we'll get more into the why with backstory, but I use that to hook this player into the story that's going to revolve around the Amber temple. So that, you know, this is Beth's character, the cleric, has a reason to keep telling the party, hey, there's something about this Amber Temple that I keep having visions or dreams of to keep that in play, you know? <laughs> but I would never have thought anybody gave a shit about Baby Walter. And it was because the way I described his, you know, soul being whatever, transformed or whatever, and everyone went, oh, shit, what happened to Baby Walter? We saved the other two. Can we save him too? And I was like, Oh crap! Okay, they care about this, so all right, let's let's so, run with this a little bit. <laughs> let's let's give a little background on that, so those so the listeners know. Yeah, what we're please. Talking that's to. That's yeah, because context. okay, so uh, and there's some spoilers here about Curse of Strahd and the Death House. More about the Death House than Curse of Strahd. Well, the, 
with a disclaimer, because actually that doesn't have a lot to do with the Death House as written. This very much has a lot to do with the way, uh, and I'm going to shout out here to the YouTuber, uh, Lunch Break Heroes does a Curse of Strahd, like kind of reformulate certain things. And he turned the Death House into something that's really awesome with the whole Durst Manor idea. Um, so, you know, it, it it totally changes some of the story. So, so, of how so you hold can, on, hold on. Yeah. There was an infant that had yes. been turned into the center of a flesh golem, if I remember yes. correctly, like a refuse yeah. golem. Like, you're telling me, yeah, like a you body. Pulled that in, you yeah. pulled in this deeply traumatic experience from, from nowhere that wasn't in the original module. Oh, no, no, that's there. That's there. <laughs> that's absolutely there. But some of the history of, okay. the, uh, of the manor and why. That's be, be, so, so, yeah, so, and that's the background. That's basically, you're going through this, there is a, uh, when you get to the bottom, you, you, you encounter this golem is kind of the big bad thing. Well, actually, the house is the big bad thing. The golem is sort of a uh it's it's sort of the first salvo from the house as far as like when the house is really trying to kill you and that and that thing activities will do that too you know and the golem is like you had found at one point earlier a crib with like with like a like a doll in it and now you find out the baby from that crib is is actually the center of this flesh golem it's been totally corrupted it is it is it is a very it is a very disturbing scene and you know sometimes your players suggest something for the story other times your players demand it and two of the players have have refused to stop they have been looking for baby walter ever since this adventure for 18 sessions we killed baby walter Okay, I'm sorry. We did it. I think I did it. Either I did it or Tony did it. We killed Baby Walter. Well, what was an awesome thing was that because of that, because the player literally just throws out this idea of, oh, my God, Baby Walter, that with their backstory specifically and the way in which they're kind of thinking of their character, I went, oh, my God, you literally just gave me a huge amount of material that I can start to play with. So exactly like what you were talking about, Tony, or what I was saying earlier, they'll tell you exactly where, how much they want to know and what's important to them. Looking at kind of, you know, these scenes, I can tell you like what I took away from each of these settings. I felt they were pretty well built. Like the, the setting for Astapor, the, uh, the, the initial city in Slaver's Bay, I definitely came out of there with the sense that we had been slaves in a slave economy. You borrowed a lot from Spartacus, you borrowed a lot from kind of a uh, even 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 just kind of you know uh, this, this idea that it was a big thriving booming city but run by yeah so worshiping I, 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 I took the city of uh, of Zaprora and uh, I I always wanted to play with this idea I had found in Pathfinder in their world with this like infernal empire idea and so I was like oh this is Zaprora and then yeah I completely lifted a shit ton from the series of Spartacus. Yeah. For Thrace and all of that. Stuff. And like, I felt like that was like, that made sense. Like I felt like that was a pretty vivid setting. And as we've gone away, you kind of had like you, you've, we've had these like the area where it's kind of like wilderness and they're building roads. Cause they're expanding quickly. Yeah. Kind of like a, kind of like a Roman empire expansion, really like they're building roads. Very much, and then yeah. we get to, we, we get to this border town where, you know, I definitely got the idea that this town was okay. They had been free. They joined the empire cause they had to, and it's kind of a town. I remember the geographic details. It's kind of a town on a mountainside, with like a river crashing down through it, running to the sea. Actually, it's a good sense of setting, in my opinion. And I, you know, we remember like I remember the the, the mages' grotto there, where grove where he had the grove of these ancient elven trees. Yeah. And that stuff, all those details do kind of stick. Uh, Barovia 
Barovia has every second felt like this, you know, twilight kind of dusty, foggy place that you'd really rather not be in, <laughs> you know. Which is or, literally, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. That's the, from the Barovia. The, Just keep explaining that first. From the crying child that when we first walked into the town to the hags at the uh, at at bone, bone grinder, it has at never not grinder. felt like. A, just like just like a, a just just miserable you know transylvanian kind of place where you re- really probably yeah, should not like have come. this fairy tale gone nightmarish right yeah this yeah it's it's got that deep woods it's got that kind of um eastern european village feel which is what they were going for and it's it's definitely you definitely hit that absolutely i mean um in storm king's thunder i mean the, the feel has been really highly magical you know, that like everything is flying castles and airships. And that has been, you know, we've gone to different uh, environments there, more than kind of the world having one feel, you know? I I did, uh, I want to do two environments I did. Uh, two games ago where I did Magnesia, which Dave did not have a chance to play in. That was actually a second edition D&D campaign. That was the last one that I've ran of that type. And it was my own personal take I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast before. Um, that was Plato's name for his utopia. Yeah. So I stole that. And um, <laughs> it was basically my version of Greyhawk. But to bring a massive D&D city to life like that, it required an obscene amount of bandwidth. You've got to have your monarchy. So who rules it? And the cities, it's got districts in it. And what's in these districts? And who are the players in the districts? And what's their economy look like? And are there lands surrounding Magnesia? Why, they sure are. And there's these lands outside the city that are also citizens of this nation. And guess what? They have neighbors. And before you knew it, I designed the whole planet. Which, (laughs) honestly, the players probably only played in maybe a quarter of. Over the yeah, course of you, two you years. Took us, you took us off planet early and often. Yeah. So, I mean, really, uh, so this, the, these details were there. Like, I didn't go crazy design every town and every province. Um, Magnesia had five greater provinces that made up its lands. I don't think you traveled in any of them, nor do I think you met any of their adversaries to the ocean to the north. Mm. Um, honestly, it wasn't super important to the context of the plot. On a smaller version, I added to Storm King's Thunder, which had an existing map that was very fleshed out in terms of all the details of all these towns. A lot of places, honestly, you would uh, there were clues in some, and some you spent a lot of time in, and some you were already at very briefly. But I created my Sky Mall, where I had my magical item shop, and I explained in the previous podcast why I did that. I wanted everyone to have an outlet for their gold. Um, if you're defeating these giant clans, you're going to have all this capital. They got to do something fun with it. But what I felt in terms of setting the stage in details was that there are cool things for you to have out here. There are people who are still more powerful than you. And you're discovering something in the scene that you had were not aware of. And there's a lot of things going on, which were bits of the story you were in the process of uncovering. Like, that's what that was when you arrived there. So it was both plot and opportunity for the players. I will say, Tone, real quick, uh, regarding Storm Kings, as opposed to the other, Woodstock and Strahd and, um, you know, the other ones that prior to that that we've been discussing, 
I actually, with the Storm King's campaign, Thorin, you said it has felt very highly magical, very high fantasy, very, like, way larger than life. And I draw a corollary with that to the Marvel campaign, which we're running, which is a very cosmic level campaign, right, where we are jet setting across literally the solar system and different dimensions. I haven't felt as connected to what the world of the Forgotten Realms, in essence, the Sword Coast in the Storm Kings game, because we've been fucking flying. So we know the Sky Mall, we know the giant capitals where we've come down, but outside of maybe a little bit Nightstone, because we started there, and a little bit of Bryn Shandar, mm -hmm. um, outside of that, I, we don't really know what's happening in the world other than the giants are coming down. And that's been very enjoyable because we've gone and fought massive giant clans and seen their strongholds and learned lore, but nothing in terms of the world that it comes from in that way, right? Because we've been flying. Well, you know what it kind of feels like is it reminds me of Final Fantasy uh, 1. Like it reminds me of playing that kind of like Final Fantasy or even like a, the, the early like kind of um, Dragon, uh, I guess Dragon Slayer games where you're you're going around this map and you're going town to town and you're going dungeon to dungeon and the individual towns might have little things that call out to you but really what you remember like when you think of the environment of the world you remember being on the ship and sailing from one adventure to another you remember going into the shop and getting the cool items so the emphasis isn't on and this is okay like this is this is not a criticism at all it's no, these are different but, flavors yeah. you know yeah. the the flavor here is that mm. it's you know you're you're getting on your ship you're going to the shop you're getting the things you want to get you're getting on your ship you're going to you're going to to the castle where you need to do your next thing you're in that castle that castle has a distinct flavor i mean the hill giants to the fire giants to the storm to the storm giants all very different flavorful castles and, and settings yeah. for the next adventure but so that but what we've experienced of it has been very much that it's been the adventure like kind of the adventure points the the for lack of a better word the dungeons even though well most as dungeons. as tony has said before uh partly because of his style of running one yeah. being the the sturdy sturdy railroad get your ticket and get on nothing wrong with it right well, but the idea of episodic Right. Yes. We, because he thought we talk about episodes. We talk about that. And it's very much that you're not concerned so much with what happened to the characters in between episode one and two, because that kind of fills in through the episode in a way. Right. It becomes kind of the background that you just kind of through context clues, you <laughs> gather that stuff happened. And then, you know, there were shenanigans and stuff. Right. Like the doctor <laughs> says. Right. But yeah, it's been very much that feel of here's the next big world-changing event that you are now embroiled in, right? Well, yeah, it's, it's you're going dungeon to dungeon, encounter to encounter. Like it really does. It reminds me a lot of like that old, you know, kind of think of the Final Fantasy map where like you're at the top, you're you're piloting your thing around. Maybe there's some random encounters, but then you go into the next town and poof, you're in the yeah. town. Like we're yeah. talking Final Fantasy seven and before or like eight and before, not open world Final Fantasy like we have now, but like that's kind of how it feels. You know, it's like you're, here's the world, you're kind of flying over and buzzing around, then you get into the town, you do your thing, and you move on, you know? Yeah. Tony, is that, I mean, is that what you're going for? Are we getting it right? I think that, uh, well, first of all, to be compared to Final Fantasy, I think is an, a monstrous compliment. <laughs> I love this game, absolutely. I, in no way do I mean this is a negative thing. No, I, I would say with that, 
if we weren't playing so infrequently, I may have changed my style a bit where you had an opportunity to go into these towns and do some more of the more my hands are in the earth kind of events. The timing of the adventures really does have huge changes in how I roll things out in terms of difficulty, in terms of how many plot points I want to throw out. We've talked about this. If we're not playing for four weeks, I certainly went, okay, I'm like, Dave, so here's to your plot, Thorns to your plot, and Amber to your plot, and um, um, Bonnie, <laughs> check your email. And Scott, I'll send you a text later tonight. You know, like, it doesn't get properly, um, it, it, it doesn't flow right. And um, with that, it is uh, more important to hit the, the keynotes. Tom, that's a good point, because if we think about it, right, we're going to be, so this weekend we're going to be doing what seems to maybe be the finale of Storm Kings, right? Uh, and we are 17 sessions, 18 sessions in? Something to that effect. Something like that, right? So if we think about it, so we have 18 sessions we ran this adventure through, right? And there's tons of information. You could turn this adventure into a five-year campaign if you so were insanely wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. But if we were running with like, okay, well, now you guys enter Waterdeep and you can have some adventures in Waterdeep, we'd still be like in Waterdeep and like we'd still be like 20 sessions in and still have, you know, nine chapters to go in the book, right? So yeah, you're the, the timing of it, the frequency of play definitely... Uh, as you've said before, if you're playing weekly or bi-weekly, well then yeah, you're gonna you're gonna you know let this parse out a little bit more. But if not, you gotta run this thing, or else you're gonna be playing this campaign for ten years. Well, yeah, I think there's some truth to that, but I also think, I mean, it's still 18 sessions. Like when you say we did this over 18 sessions, that doesn't to me sound like we did it really quickly. It's not like we breezed through it in four sessions, right? I mean, no, no, no. But uh, you'll hear about people who will take they'll have been playing, let's say, Strahd or something for like. Oh, I'm two years in, and like we're coming. Cl- I'm like, Jesus Christ! Like, how much was? How much is there to investigate in Velaki, bro? Like, you know? <laughs> a lot. But if yeah. your players, if that's what they're into, man, then yeah, cool, no problem. But it kind of changes, yeah, episodic or not. Dave, what was the first town that we arrived in in your campaign? Where the blood and the vine? Which one was that? The village of Barovia. Okay, that it was, was actually literally Barovia just proper. yeah, it's just Barovia, but you know the village of. My character is not the investigating type, but I'll tell you right now, we obviously missed a lot of shit in there. Like, obviously. I wouldn't say a, I wouldn't say a lot. Uh, no, to tell you the truth, you guys kind of hit almost all the points that are made in that, other than, like, things that you just invent because you walk in some, I want to walk in this house. Um, okay, you meet this guy named Matt, and he says, hey, why are you in my house, right? Like, outside of that. You guys hit everything. The only thing you didn't was you didn't go to Mad Mary's. Uh, you walked by that. You guys walked by that house crying. like three times, and I was like, "And you hear this moaning?" You're like, "And we keep walking." <laughs> I thought we actually did. Did we dip no. in there and ask you a question or two? I thought no, we did. But no, you, you, you were we never did. Before. You were debating. Like some of you guys were like, "I want to walk," and they're like, "No, we're gonna walk. keep walking, eyes <laughs> forward." Because <laughs> you guys we had heard just something about entered. selling kids there. You guys were just coming out of uh, what was Durst Manor, the death house. Um, and 
Yeah, so you guys were already a little gun shy and like, yeah, we don't need to bother with that. And, you know, but you guys were in the church and you, you know, you you met a lot of the townsfolk and you even met the hag early on when she tried to feel up your uh, warlock. Glad my instincts kicked in and didn't let her touch that. Yeah. <laughs> Might have been, uh, been an early maiming and an end to his uh, philandering career. That was when I knew that I had a real solid gaming group together was when that whole uh, interchange happened between Phineas the Warlock and Morganta. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, we're good. We're, this he's, is he's trying to fun. flirt with this. He's trying to flirt with this old lady just enough to get a free dream cake. And, yeah, she's, yeah. and, she, and she's like, oh, let me touch it. What? <laughs> and you were kind of into it, but not, you know. It was <laughs> no, no, no. That, that definitely felt off there. It's like, okay, okay, danger, danger. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you what, that will test the bonds of, of friendship and stuff between your gaming group when uh, uh, <laughs> that character's wife is also playing in the game and the DM <laughs> and the character are role-playing uh, an old woman trying to feel him up. So anyway, there you to, go. To, to be fair, when it's, when it's the DM and, and, and it, when, it, when, it, when it's a male DM and a male player, I don't think there's the same thing there as if it was, you know... <laughs> that, that might have changed the dynamic a little it, it felt nothing, yeah. I, think, I think for all involved, it felt nothing but kind of hilarious and awkward. It was, yeah. Yeah, there was certainly no awesome. threat in this situation. Awesome. So, uh, awesome. I, in no way was this sexy. This was hilarious and awful. <laughs> no, that's not no, the adjective I would have used. Sexy about it. No, no. And, and that will also not be role With the small eye and the big eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That will always be the way it is. I'm sorry. We're going to fade to black if it gets too, uh, too sensual. Well, I, well, I th but I think it also in that case, just it, that in itself is a scene setting, right? It's oh, like, you know, you can't, you, you, you can't exactly horny bard your way through Barovia. You can do it a little bit, but you very quickly, you're going to wind up missing some of the essential parts. But what it also, back to one of the my points earlier too, it told me a lot about for instance, Phineas's character and how you were going to approach this scene because you guys had now been introduced to the gothic horrorness of Barovia and you were starting to push against those walls, each of you in your own way. You know, in the same way at Old Bone Grinder, when Tony's character, Hawk, walks in and he says, Okay, Dave, I am going to hear what they just said. I am going to turn around, walk over, and shut the door. I was like, oh, this dude's just ready to drop, like, drop fists literally anytime something has happened. So, like, your characters are telling you about uh, what they consider important in the scene, but also how are they going to push against those walls and which ones don't they care? What walls don't they care about? So, don't worry about setting a scene there, right? Mm, mm. So I feel like a lot of my characters love that theme where we're going to solve this problem with direct means as many – like I'm in Thorn's game and I'm, my cop's like, what do you mean I can't kill it by shooting it in the face? I shoot it in the face again. <laughs> he's He's got to be nearly dead. I will say, so here you go. This is now what? Three – I think three games I've played with you in, in with you, Tony, right? So between Marvel and, and Strahd and, so, and Erasmus. Um – no, four that's what I four. four because of Erasmus. Because yeah. so that's what I've noticed. That's what I'm noticing with Tony's characters. Um, he doesn't like to be like uh, he's not playing second fiddle in terms of power. Like he's gonna punch first and ask questions later, regardless if he's a wizard or a barbarian or a cop or a. <laughs> he was, well, he's gonna armor up and start laying down hands. That's it. 
Well, I would say what I would say about Tony uh, as a player is Tony will try that first. And he will he he will see if the direct approach works first. And then if it doesn't work, he'll go back begrudgingly and find another way. Is that, is that fair, Tony? That is fair. <laughs> He's a little disappointed when it doesn't work. It's like, what do you mean I can't just pound this thing or shoot it? <laughs> um, which isn't which which does this isn't an aside because this actually this is part of why I wanted to have this episode because we just did this in Curse of, in um I'm sorry in, in Call of Cthulhu, oh, yeah. where we had the situation. So, so here we're talking about setting, and perhaps one of the more challenging things about taking a group of D- mostly D and D players and Marvel players, where everyone is literally a superhero, and taking oh. them into the curse of the, the Call of Cthulhu world. Oh, it's not the same. It's yeah, I'm like, same. I can't get the engine to turn over. I got. Ah. I'm just gonna yell real quick here because they won't get it through their heads. They're still playing as if it's high fantasy D and D or superheroes, and we're going to die. <laughs> going to well, die. My character is going insane, <laughs> and everyone's, ah. Anyway, continue, please. <laughs> we, 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 we might be giving people a chance to roll new characters. That, yeah. uh, that, that might be happening soon. Um, most uh, of the party is mostly insane at this point. Awesome. But so, so, so here's the challenge, right? Because it is a world where Tony has said before, I think even on this, and, and, and Tony, back me up here, <laughs> it's hard to do horror, right? You're not going to make your players feel scared. But the gag we're trying to do Call of Cthulhu is you need to make them feel some kind of scared. You need to make them feel like their characters are not the most powerful thing in this world. Because the whole idea, what underlies Lovecraftian horror, is exactly that idea that you're every human, every character, every player character in the story is nothing but a flea or more, 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 more like more like a worm in the dung left by a dog that maybe the great older ones step on without noticing. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's like you are insignificant against the things, some of the things you're facing, but a lot of them are not. So guns you are need effective. That trepidation and tension. You need those, not horrorlessly, but trepidation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you need, at some point you need that realization moment. You need, you need those moments where the party goes, Oh yeah, I'm fine. I've got my guns. That's good. I, we've, we've got shotguns and we've got sniper rifles and we've got handguns and we're fine. We're going to run into this abomination. We're going to shoot it in the face until it dies. Yeah, boy. We're loaded up like a militia. <laughs> we got dynamite. What doesn't die to dynamite? And you got to brush them back. You got it. You got to bring in some. So, so this is where this, where this connects because if part of your setting is horror or some other version of the players need to be worried for their characters' lives, you need to set up some brushback pitches that put them in their place without destroying the party. And I've done some of that. I'll get into how I, what I've done in a minute, but do you guys feel like, does that have a different vibe? Do you, do you feel like that feels real to you? It is definitely a different vibe than the other settings that we're in, for sure. It's an interesting point where we're dealing with the yeah, we're spending enough disbelief where it's like, okay, my character is a normal person. He's not running around in a cape or in full plate or with a wizard's hat, but he is brave enough to go on this adventure to try to rescue this person who has been kidnapped by this evil cult. At the same time, you're trying to kind of rationalize or push back against that some of the things that we're going to run into aren't just cultists. In fact, you just wish they were cultists. Mm-hmm. So you run into these things that are really, really horrifying. And to my character who shot the one undead guy in the face and he didn't die, you know, I'm sitting here and in and, and my heart, I'm a gamer. And I, I first blast this guy with a shotgun, which in the Call of Cthulhu system does preposterous damage. 
Yeah. Like that would have killed my character twice. <laughs> Three and times I, over. Yeah. yeah. I shot this guy in the face with a pump acting shotgun for something to the effect of like 12 or 14 damage. And his face was black, like a scene from Daffy Duck. <laughs> like standing there like uh, uncomfortable moments. <laughs> and that the, um, was, I yes. will say like to your point, Thorne, um, I think a big part of it is because all of us, well, not you two, but the rest of us are new to the Call of Cthulhu system. Um, and I've talked before how it's it's uh, somewhat easier to roleplay in certain ways and somewhat harder to roleplay in certain ways. And I think part of it is because if you were playing this uh, alongside the old D&D, right, the, the initial iterations of it where it was wildly lethal, it would be a little easier to translate over. But when you're playing in a Marvel game and several D&D games of 5e where you are literal gods among men, it's hard sometimes, I think, for players, especially because we're all playing them, in essence, together, to translate that over to realize you're a normal person right now, you know? And to, to I, I have seen the, the, some of the difficulty in you trying to get this across, and sometimes it, it, it's there, and sometimes it's not there, you know, in terms of how the characters then role play those situations. You know? mm -hmm. um, it's, it's difficult, though, most definitely. And, and there's, you know, I don't even want to focus on the difficulty, because this really isn't, it is difficult in its own way, but what's really more important is, okay, so, so what can you use to kind of make this happen, you know? Right. And, and one of the nice things about Call of Cthulhu is, one of the coolest things is that being set in somewhere that is not that long ago, we have access to a lot of documents. So I can do a lot of scene setting where I can go find a picture of the place you're in a literal picture of like Providence oh, yeah. Island from 1920. Like they're in the one town, the town of Rockport. There's literally probably because of Call of Cthulhu, there's literally a, a 1920s Rockport, Rockport website that has pictures of the buildings they're going to. So <laughs> like you guys got to go to the Rockport old church. Okay. And here's the Rockport old church, real picture, real building. It existed. You well, know, well, just like in the first game, you pulled up Bookbinder's menu. I mean, yeah. like the actual one. <laughs> so, so that stuff helps here. It helps set this, okay, you are back in time. You know, communication's harder. You can't get on cell phones, obviously. So doing some of those things helps set the scene. But then letting them shop, letting them shop through 1920 stuff is also something that has a nice feel of setting the scene. You know, it's like, okay, we're getting these old timey kind of guns, not like Uzis, you know, there's a couple civil, there might be like a, a naval saber around you can pick up. There's some knives, there's dynamite, there's not grenades, that kind of thing helps set the scene. But then you got to drive home the, okay, you can't necessarily fight everything you're coming up against. And what I did in this, in, in this adventure, there are many things in the Cthulhu setting that are going to be by the book impervious to some extent to the damage you, you can dish out. I upped a couple of the zombies, not zombies, but the the the, the followers of Glaaki. They were not necessarily invulnerable. So coming into this game, I knew I didn't just want something where the players kick down the door and start gunning everything down because that wasn't going to drive home what the setting's all about. And it's going mm. to set a bad precedent for the future when things are more dangerous. So I knew I needed to drive home the sense of, okay, sometimes you need to figure out something else or run away. Sometimes the point of defeating this isn't to kill it, but to get the hell out of there with your lives. And maybe you, you collapse the building on top of it, which you wind up doing. So these two servants, <laughs> so, so these two servants of Glaaki, 
and they're very old. They're from the Civil War. They're starting to decay. There's a certain sunlight decay they get. That was the that's the green stuff you guys found in their coffins. We haven't gotten into that though. But I decided to treat it as true eternal life. That okay, you can deal physical damage to them, but it's not going to stop them. You know, it might cause some problems, like when Tony shot the one in the face with actually it was a handgun. The the you shot him in the face after you dropped your shotgun. You had the hand, you had, but still, you shot him in the face with a handgun, so it blinded him. They're blinded him from, from one eye. And I also, I knew they weren't that dangerous. So what I was able, to, what I tried to do here was to have a scenario where I know they're trying to capture you. That's in the that's in the setting. They, they want to do something else with you. They would have loved for you to have been on those stakes you found later to be turned to the service of Glaaki. That was mm. their plan. So. They're trying to capture you. They're trying to throw you in their coffins and put the lid on you until the night when they're going to take you to the to, to the to the lake. So they're not dealing that much damage to you. It's not that dangerous an encounter. But I can drive home that okay, some of the things you're going to come up against, you're not going to be able to shoot your way through by having an encounter here where you can't shoot your way through them. It's sunlight out, so they can't leave. So you guys have a way out. They might throw. Maybe they do wind up beating you and getting you all in the coffins or some of you in the coffins, and you go back to, and we then you get taken to the lake later. But I could do it here and set this tone that would carry through, that would hopefully leave, send the message for the rest of the game. It's not that you can't shoot things to death. It's that you can't shoot everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And once you start seeing it not taking damage, I, 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 you know, the biggest thing I wanted to set on tone was to, once you start seeing something not taking damage, reconsider, you know? And I think, I don't know. I mean, I hope it didn't feel unfair, like, or not, not unduly unfair. Call Cthulhu was unfair. It is unfair to the players. That's the Lovecraft's universe is unfair to humanity. That's the whole point. Um, but I mean, I, I hope it didn't feel too unfair and unfun. And if you notice, I was really trying to watch reactions when you guys were playing that. Um, the toughest part about that system is compared to the other ones is that the skill checks are brutal. So I don't, think that's, yeah. I don't feel like that's necessarily has really anything to do with your setting or how you're rolling that out. The, the concerns you're expo we've expressed with doing horror, I remember reading in the original Ravenloft by Tracy and Laura Hickman, the module, when I talked about that, I'm like, listen, you know what? You're in a situation and you've got these guys wading through a swamp with zombie arms sticking out. It's supposed to be a really terrifying scenario, but you know what's really happening is you're all sitting around and you're all having chips. So... <laughs> The best you can do is try to keep everybody really into the setting, present the flavor, try to hit as many of those notes as you can, and, and roll with that. I um, Specifically regarding uh, the Call of Cthulhu, because it's been, uh, for this very reason, it's very, very interesting to be playing it and seeing how does it run to try to help translate that over into something like a Strahd or something where you are trying to create some sort of horrific element, you know? Um, and I, from speaking to you on multiple occasions about Cthulhu, I know, I think that like that initial starter adventure that you would go through at the Corbett house and the, the bed that literally, you know, kills someone every single time in our group, it didn't, right? Yeah. Because no one got thrown out the our, our character, the character, Chris's character that walked in, thankfully was able to, you know, dodge or whatever, because I think it's that type of thing. If, if you see that death is, this is how the world is, right? This is not, oh, I cast a revivify spell or something, or, you know, or uh, Odin comes down and raises Thor up to fight with the Avengers again or something. Like, no, you're dead now. So you're, you're dead. Uh, so, um, I think that changes, like you said, it, you teach your players the game that it is. And I think that's what, you're, what you have been doing. 
because yeah. we have blasted our way out of things, but we've also had our ass handed to us when the frog people, or whatever the hell those things are, were blasting into the, the lighthouse, and we're all looking at seven hit points that we have, because we're human beings, and there's like, you know, six of these things. So that level of tension, even while Tony, you know, we're sitting around having chips or whatever and joking around incessantly because there's so many goddamn jokes from this Cthulhu game. <laughs> but that level of tension of you better make that skill check or you have to get up the stairs, the 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 trepidation, the tension that my character can go, I could still be having a fun time and laughing. But that tension is there. And I think that's that dial that is is sometimes hard to um, to maneuver. But Thorne has been kind of showing us, like, no, this, this, this is real stakes here, you know? You can't just militia your way through a, a rock board. <laughs> and that was actually exactly what I had in mind when I decided to go that way with it. Because, I mean, I had let you guys load up. I had given you guys oh, some money. Uh, you guys loaded up for bear. You've got a ton of guns. You don't have a ton of bullets, but you have enough. Like, you're going to be able to shock on your way through this adventure if I didn't put something in there. <laughs> Some bull that, clips out there. Yeah. Because yeah. um, what I didn't want is there's a climax coming up, and I, and, and I, I just, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of setting scene a little bit, and I don't want certain things to happen because they will ruin the feel of the Lovecraftian horror if they mm. go down a certain way. Now, the, the 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 lighthouse worked out great, I thought. You guys were running from those deep one, from those deep ones. You got to the top, you hold up, you finally turned the gold over and they left you alone. I felt like that ran perfectly. Um the only thing was part of the reason you couldn't fight your shoot your way out of that was you didn't have enough bullets. There you, you go. Know? I so was like, just so going like, to say so, like, that's, so what did we learn? Go buy guns. Right. <laughs> yeah. In the Corbett household, okay, Corbett himself was a little bit hard, but you actually shot him to death very easily. The most dangerous thing in that household to you guys was the stairs. It like yeah. oh, not the stairs. stairs. <laughs> so what you learned from that was okay, we can if we can just get a clean shot on this thing, we can kill the great old immortal grand wizard if I can just shoot him. Exactly. But you know, be careful going down the stairs because it's because as Tony, as we just saw, like Tony, like you just said, the skill checks can be brutal. The point isn't supposed to be that the skill checks can be brutal. The point's supposed to be that some things are beyond your ability to, con to contend with, and you need to approach them. You, you need to find other ways. And often the other way, like, like you guys did with the Deep Ones and like you guys did with, the, with, 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 those, with, those, uh, with Turner's Acolytes, with the yeah. followers, you get out of the house and you collapse the house on them or something like that. You just need to get away, and that's a win. And you're all a little bit emotionally and mentally scarred from it. Like we said, they're mostly mostly insane now um we're having a bit of an issue if you if anyone knows this uh the, the the ancient under the ancient trees they have just you know they basically just came to this to the lakeside they just found the artist colony who have been attached to those stakes and were being turned into servants and they have like i think three or four of the party members are actively having nervous breakdowns now. at least so. yeah at least and i think the other ones are uh probably close yeah <laughs> so uh close. there's been a lot there's been a lot of sanity loss in this particular <laughs> particular adventure i uh, feel like i'm playing uh a game of arkham horror the board game that you brought over the one night where like oh no yeah you're immediately insane and you die I love that game. and get another character who do you want to play now <laughs> but because of things like the limited technology i feel like that really does set an excellent place for the story to take place dare i say that is the ideal setting you're not going to hop on your cell phone uh mm -hmm. you're not going to get an m16 uh, you're not going to get grenades. Technology is limited. Ammunition is limited. And isn't that really like a foundation in classic survival horror? 
which may not exactly be what you're going for, but it kind of is a relatable act. Like, we all played yeah. those Resident Evil games where you show up on the murder site, and what do you got? Six bullets. And, you know, you've seen at least eight zombies so far. <laughs> well, actually, uh, I do want a little bit of survival horror. Uh, but I also didn't want to give you guys a situation where I'm like, okay, you, you're, I didn't want to make your bullet management the main point of the game. I want there to be a survival horror moment, but I don't want it to be a logistical game. You know what I mean? So, like, that's why when you guys hit the town, I let you buy whatever you wanted. Stock up. Go ahead. Yeah. Because the point's not supposed to be that you don't have access to enough bullets to protect yourself. The point's supposed to be that there are a couple things, not not, not all of them. But there are some things that your bullets aren't going to help you. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it doesn't and you matter. actually can take Lovecraftian horror to the modern world very easily if you do things like turn that technology against them. So, like, I mean, having an M16 and, like, you know, high-tech grenades with you and white phosphorus and things like this to attack a great old, to attack, like, a uh, spawn of Shudmel or something or, a, or to attack one of these things, it sounds great until you start r rattling off M16 bullets into it and it doesn't die. And well, now, now well, you're let's... really afraid. Here you go. Here's a mod. I mean, this isn't a Cthulhu uh, type of mythos or, or great old one, but let me know how well it turned out for the whole team of Predator, right? Yeah. Last time I checked, they were all hung from trees with their guts pulled out, you yeah. know? So, And the only way that he beat him in the end was using his own uh, technology against the, the Predator in a way, right? And kind of thinking his way through the thing. And I wouldn't call the Predator necessarily Lovecraftian, but there are certainly no. Lovecraftian, but that is a Lovecraftian element to it. Like, it's not that far away. In fact, you could, you can look at what Le, at what Lovecraft, well, Lovecraft is doing as early science fiction uh, horror. Absolutely. He really is, he's playing with the same idea that if the alien Predator comes down here to hunt you, you are just a victim or just a prey, a prey animal you won't be able to stand up to its to technology that to you that is so advanced that it seems like magic. And that's really kind of at the heart, part of the heart of Lovecraftianism. There's also the whole aspect of this wider outer gods thing where not only are they aliens that so far ahead of you, it looks like magic, but they are literally seeing and experiencing the universe in a way that you are only a bug. Um, Absolutely. But I think that also with Call of Duty, I haven't played now. I like, you could do it in the modern day, like we just talked about, but I think a big part of it is because of the period pieceness of it, because in the 20s and 30s, you had this idea of this weird supernaturalness. You had, you know, the weird secrets of the East and, you know, all of these yeah. kind of things where those those players can then really dig into that kind of stuff where, you know, the classics professor from Princeton has a completely different feel than a professor from Princeton in 2020. It's just a different yes. feel, you know? It's a different, being an antiquarian, being an old Boston cop is totally, just totally different. And I think that's, for me, that's what I, I enjoy digging into is that periodness of it, you know? In the way that you, is the periodness, but also you mentioned like the idea that there's these secrets from the Far East. The periodness of it, but what makes that period feel so interesting is that it's a time when you heard about these places, but did not experience them directly. You weren't right. connected to them. And there are secrets to be learned by getting access to them, which we've talked about is like really kind of at the heart of, of, of what is the protagonist role in a Lovecraftian kind of game is that one is to survive, but two is that, that you, you tease the protagonist, you tempt them with, there are these secrets to learn and you're, you're driven on a bit by your desire to learn them and maybe unlock the powers from them, even if you go a bit insane from it. So that's right. kind of what, well, why would your character be there? That's why there are these secrets. And that's another thing you need to put in the game. 
which I think we did very well with the book, the, with the black book of, of uh, Eben that you found in the um, in the first adventure. And we haven't come back to that yet. We will, depending on what yeah. happens next. You know, yeah, now we're kind of yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's kind of it's the, that time period where science, the 20th century science, was was exploding, and this whole shift over from old 19th century and, and before and and those type of mores. And it was this crossroads where science was able to explain everything, except it wasn't, mm -hmm. right? And so those types of mysterious things could still play into people's psyches, I think. Honestly, I think one of the most difficult environments to run a fantasy game in is the modern one, because that requires the most suspension of disbelief i put in the 20s you're inherently taken to a different place where different things yeah. can happen mm. medieval i mean it's even easier okay so you're now a thousand years in the past in the marvel game we spend most of our campaign time off world and that's one of the reasons we don't have to butt heads with those elements that and the fact that most of uh, my companions in that game aren't from earth so earth <laughs> would be like a really alien environment to them in the first place and on top of that, with the Marvel game, even if we weren't jet-setting around the cosmos, if we were playing on Earth, I can bet you that we'd probably be playing on 1980s Earth because that's when that game yeah. really – because that's when it was created, but it was that style. So if you're trying to play in that, most people revert back to that, that idea of Manhattan and that idea of, you know – and, and, you know, yeah. 1980s Earth is really when Marvel was at its height in a lot exactly. of ways, in comic exactly. height. So, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about how you can use description to, to drive home the sense of setting and, and the things you want to put in it. What about mechanics? You know, we just talked about in the Cthulhu game how I use that sense of that, you know, these things are hard to kill in order to kind of drive home the sense of setting. What Are, are there any other mechanical things you do to make your settings have that feel you want them to have? Well, one of the things that, um, dare I say, that should be established in session zero or uh, immediately in session one is the difficulty, which is part of the flavor of your game. So, like, what are we talking about? It's an open world. You're going to run into some random encounters with some easy, disorganized monsters in, in your opening session. Or are you stepping foot outside of town and there's an ambush of half a dozen Navy SEAL-style bandits waiting there for you with poison arrows. Like, what does this world look like? Are we talking like this is really a, as Dave would say, a, a celebration of your friends getting together for the game? Or are your, <laughs> game, are your players like, look, we've been there and done that, and it's time for ultra-violence mode? <laughs> I think that's a great point, because... You know, we're talking about setting just as kind of the place they are and the and, and, and what we want them to experience. The difficulty level is a huge part of the setting. You know, are, are, are your fights easy or hard is the difference between is this kind of a classic fantasy game or a fairy tale game versus is this like a post-apocalyptic type game where, where, you know, humanity gets its ass kicked every time it steps out, steps out of the house. And what is a high-level character slash NPC look like in this world. I think that is one of the best benchmarks is a super high level character level 18 or six. Huh? How do you do that? Like, like how do you kind of, how do you display that? If you're running a game that you're running very frequently, 
I think a higher level character should be lower level. I know that sounds strange, but then you're doling out lower levels of XP. Um, your the the benchmarks, even if you are running milestones, the milestones are there's more grinding involved to get there. If you're going to be running once a month game, then I'm I'm, I'm more relaxed with it because I want the players to feel like they're moving their characters around. I don't want them to say, oh, geez, I am four sessions away from getting to level three. That, that's tough. I that The fact that we have spread out games isn't necessarily on the players. So I still want things to flow in terms of story and character advancement smoothly. Whereas with that lower level game or the, the game that meets less frequently, would you say then that you're going to play maybe the same number of sessions, but by the time they're done those sessions, they're at a lower level total when they hit higher levels, they're going to wind up somewhere else. Like you're kind of going to go through this, this setting's only going to be to like level 10. And then after level 10, I'm going to take you somewhere else, which we know you like we've talked about, you, you do like to do. Yeah, no, at, at that point, then the things you were doing in levels one through four, perhaps you're running around the woods, around yeah. town, the swamp beyond the town, that's all fine and good. But when you hit the next tier, you're now in five, maybe you're going to the mountain beyond the swamp. You're going to the yeah. area that perhaps that the people in the town themselves don't often explore or you found catacombs nobody was aware of. Hmm. What about you, Dave? Any like mechanical tricks you use to kind of set the scene? Yeah, I mean, aside from so the I'll use Slaver's Bay as the first example. Um, and I obviously used a mechanic uh, very specifically that I locked you into the adventure we were going to be going on for the beginning. Uh, through the idea of the slave collars, the magical slave collars that were in essence like, you know, they would they would explode, they would kill you if you d disobeyed uh, the domino, right? So uh, that was a that was a very you know a very blunt instrument mechanic, but one that I don't think the way in which I I utilized it because again I had done the idea of pitching the campaign, so everyone was on board for. Okay, you're in a slave economy and you're slaves of this empire, and, and we're gonna have some fun with that, right? So everyone was on board with that. So I could use this really gross thing to be, you know, this this heavy, <laughs> heavy-handed <laughs> approach. Um, that if you didn't know you were getting into it would be kind of a dick move, right? But everyone knew. So I could explain that and set the set the scene of you know, you guys waking up in the keep, you have been slaves and been involved in the gladiatorial things for a time. And then we start, boom. And then you kind of, as you explore the world, that mechanic can start to shift. Um, I will say with Curse of Strahd, I, there's mechanics they use, not mechanics as much as kind of they reskin it. Um, I didn't use it just because, but they have a whole listing of ways in which spells and effects and things change in the demi-plane of Barovia, you know, where let's say you uh, summon fake creatures, they all look undead, you know, or they look like skeletons or something, you know, just like fun little uh, reskins, but they do it to try to drive home this thing. But I, I think you, I, we, I drove home the point of where are you? So I didn't necessarily have to use a mechanic in that way. Um, but, it's more fun if you bring characters in from another. If you bring in, if you bring them in a little later, where they've been somewhere else and use their spells, so they're used to it looking one way, and now you can change the, you know, flip the switch. No, you're a, in Barovia now. I think that's a great point, right? As opposed to like you've been doing this the whole time, and now you're here, and now you're you're casting skeletons. You're like, what the hell is that? 
Um, and I use the, I mean, I don't think it's a mechanic thing, but it falls into Tony's point um, in, in a way uh, from earlier episodes uh, that I brought Strahd out very, very early. I brought him out very quickly um, to give a sense of, okay, there's a reason that this module is called Curse of Strahd, right? Um, as well as kind of the, the lethality of the death house. Um, I think it ramped up some of the tension early on to, as Tony said, show that this world is um, dangerous. But then quickly, as the characters, you guys began to level up, you started to gain the upper hand and just kind of make Barovia your bitch in a lot of ways. <laughs> I do feel like you've done uh, a yes lot of no. Yes and no, <laughs> but I'm saying, like, you definitely have run through some things um, a little easier than others, but... As Thorne has said, that has now caused an idea of we could probably kick the doors in here and, you know, be OK, where, you know, one day maybe not so much. So I will say that we, that Mummy Lord was not an easy fight. That no. Mummy Lord definitely took us to our limits. Well, that was kind of like way intense, right? Because I threw out a Mummy Lord, which BT dubs is not in the mod, but, it, you know. It worked for me because I'm all what, about Universal Monsters. What is um, the CR rating of a Mummy Lord? A 15. Yeah, wow. it's a 15. Okay. Plus an Amber Golem that he brought in through that tunnel, uh, which is a CR 10. Uh, so I was wildly uh, impressed by how you guys uh, were able to, to handle that. So, yeah, it's making me really uh, think about, you know, what is Strahd up to these days? You know, he might be packing his fucking bags. I'm not sure. <laughs> the thing with the CR rating, and we know it's an imperfect science, yeah, yeah. but it's difficult to calibrate when the players get magical items because that absolutely that is, affects that the equation. True. That is true. Also, well, it's supposed to when are the is. dice hot or whose dice are hot? Are the players' dice hot or the DMs? If I was rolling, like for instance, Perfect example. So the Amber Golem kind of goes up against Sir Scar again. <laughs> Just happened that way, right? Mm -hmm. I got one hit on him out of my multi-attacks from all of those rounds. If I had had all hits, that fight would have started to look a lot different. If I had gotten some crits out, that fight would have started to look a lot different. If you guys failed some saving throws, that would have looked a lot different, right? So that also completely changed. The randomness of the dice changed the CR as well. I missed some saving throws against that mummy. Phineas <laughs> found himself face-to-face -face with a mummy, and he doesn't want to be face-to-face -face with any enemies. <laughs> that is Much not what he's here to do. He's Much like, twist. no, this is no fun now. I'm close <laughs> enough to get wrapped in with these with this, with this these bandages. No. <laughs> I don't like this game now. This game is stupid. This is not fair. This is not I'm what I'm going home. I'm already there, but I'm logging off. I'm logging off for all 20 right it's now. It really made me reconsider some of my spell choices, which we leveled after, so at least I get to make some flops, you know? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, the monster selection, the, the difficulty level, and maybe that's kind of, if you even think about, to some extent, that change I made in Call of Cthulhu is, is a little bit a matter of difficulty level, although I was also just trying to drive home, you know, very specific setting points in that case. Mm -hmm. Those things certainly count. Any other things you do to, to, to use mechanics to drive home the setting the players are in? Well, also with that... Um is not only the level of what the NPCs are at, that's the benchmark of power, but my, the question is, and something I think Dave's fielded very well in Barovia, which is 
how available is magic and what does that look like? Mm. And if you want to talk about flavor of a setting in terms of mechanics, so for example, and does the captain of the guard have a plus two sword? Is there a shop where I can buy some magical baubles? Or is there not one <laughs> scrap of magic in this town? Maybe there's a spell or two you could purchase, but that's about it. That kind of really sets the tone of if you want things, you have to go out and get them. Or are you, again, a setting where I would run where it's usually very wildly magical, where you have a shop for everyone. Well, in the right context, not every town has that. Most towns in my game don't. Some of my towns, you go to a major town like Bryn Shadar, you'd find that some magical items are available very specifically. Yeah. But if you went to Elios's Sky Mall, well, shit, he's got an extensive list of things that, you know, for people who are double digit levels plus, you know, can go peruse. And that's interesting because it really does change the tone of the campaign, doesn't it? It's a simple question of if I want to get a magic item, do I go back to my town or back to civilization where I'm safe and go buy it, which is kind of like our modern lives, or do I need to go out into the wilderness and find it, which is kind of like, you know, what you would think of a classic medieval fantasy setting, right? Like it's, that is a totally different kind of feeling. You know, we have what we need back home. Let's go home and get it versus we don't have it. The only way I'm going to get these things is to go out there and risk my life. We risk, risk all of our lives trying to get them really underrated difference in the way a campaign feels in place. Yeah. Um, I would say too, in that same vein, there are so many little, let's say just, just D&D. Let's just go with D&D because I call it the whole thing, but just D&D. There are so many opportunities as the DM when you're running it to decide what's going to be important for the characters. And then there's on top of that optional rules. So let's say for instance, um, we spoke about this in a previous episode with a listener's question about Rhyme of the Frostmaiden and trying to make a more a horror thing. And I brought up the idea that it was kind of a survival horror, especially in the early times. Mm. So are you making the characters count rations? Yeah. Are you making them have to hunt? Are you now that's going to that can be fine and that can be fun for the right group. But or are you. We haven't checked our rations in any of these fucking games that we're playing yet because <laughs> we're just like, yeah, we eat and we sit down because that hasn't been the point. Um, in Curse of Strahd, for instance, there was not a lot of magic. There also wasn't a lot of gold for a long time. Did that matter? No, because what are you buying? Wine at the local inn? Most of the time you might have gotten for free because you made friends, right? So it didn't necessarily matter that you were D&D poor in the same way in Woodstock. We were out in the woods. We were D&D poor for about eight levels, right? But we found magic. We found these kind of things. And we were on a mission, which is going to play very differently in Storm Kings if we were D&D poor, because then we're dead. Because we can't fight the giants <laughs> without what we were able to either find or purchase from the Sky Mall. So what are you counting? Are you playing a and mm -hmm. d game where you're bringing in the optional rule of sanity points? which they have going yeah. to the EMG and they have it. So now all of a sudden you're playing a very Cthulhu-esque game and that's going to now matter your choices because of what you're making them, in essence, count, right? Are you counting gold pieces? Are you counting sanity points? Are you counting magic items? 
you know, they have honor points too. These are all in the DMG yeah. out of the optional yeah. rules. And they do. These mechanics do change the way your game plays. We could say Call of Cthulhu, you can see right there, okay, we got out of that encounter, but even though we're physically okay, we're scarred. The, the character, and, and the way that it works in Call of Cthulhu is when you have a little mental break, the DM takes your character and he controls what happens, now, what the character does next. So you lost control of your character for a turn possibly for longer than a turn, depending on how much, on, on, on how much mental, how much sanity you've lost and how that's worked. Honor points change the game because now all of a sudden your, your visible honor, like the, the, your reputation becomes very important. So you need to do so that, you know, you can play a game where, where those mechanics are very important. So you, if you're worried about murder hobos, you can throw some honor system into your game with, with things that are tangible rewards for it and ha make them deal with the consequences of their actions that way. That, People know you did this thing, and they're going to treat you differently, and they're going to have different respect for you, or maybe they don't know because you're a good liar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, are there any mechanical tricks you've used in in scenarios and settings where you've that that you feel like worked really well? Like any specific things you've done that you feel like, yeah, that that was a, that really made my players feel this setting they're in. I think all of this can be settled uh, summed up in terms of benchmarking. The question is, what are you putting out there? So the players can look at and then draw where they stand. Like I said, in terms of uh, what's who's a powerful NPC, what are powerful monsters, uh, how available is magic, how available is gold, what kind of access do they have to magic in the towns? If someone dies, can they bring that person into a cleric, or they're going to take them to the cleric and get buried? Mm. These things really all set the flavor, the tone, and the context of your game for your players. Uh, so anything specific that you've done, like, like any specific mechanical kind of things you've used to set the setting that you feel like worked really well? I personally like involved item lists for shops. I think that adds a lot of flavor. It does. And I, That's true. It, it, and in my Storm Kings game, I have never had players enjoy shopping more than this <laughs> one right here. Like these guys cannot wait to get to the Sky Mall and spend their money. And I'm like... <laughs> Wow, free airtime. Here we go. Up oh, hour into my game. No problem. Must be going great. They're all having a good time. Here we go. You know, the same thing happened in Call of Cthulhu when I let you guys get out yeah. into the into the into the uh, the the general store, and I just say, yeah, take a look on the shopping list. If there's, you know, let me know what you're getting. I'll let you know. Like, if he doesn't have anything, like he doesn't have like military grade stuff. But the players, you know, we spent like an hour in there, and the players did not seem to mind one bit. They seemed to enjoy going through a list and picking out stuff. Why I think that's important is. If you are, and I've goofed on towns a lot, but if you're going to have a town, it's got to have something in there that's worth the player's time. Is it information? Is it making a contact with that NPC that's going to further the plot? Or is it a store where they're going to get supplies to help them further the plot? You've also done a bunch of skill check stuff to, to, to for because you've you've said before how important different locations are, and you tend to use skill checks a lot to, to set those apart too, don't you? I would say that was a big thing for Tony's game, yes, because we did a ton of skill challenges uh, in this game. Um, skill challenges are fun because, like, I think with in terms of any movie you're watching, anyone that's really good, even a good action one, it gets broken up. It's not action scene, action scene, action scene, funny moment, action scene. It's an action scene, some plot development, maybe a twist uh some uh, transition and then there's a good action scene and that's what makes and i love my big cinematic battles um 
we talk about in terms of uh, flavor to a game mechanically, I'd love to roll out those monsters and have these players who've been developing their characters, who they who they really like, and they're into playing, having that head-to-head moment where they can go and search out their own cool moment themselves. So about you, Dave, any any specific mechanical tricks you've used to, to create settings that you felt like worked really well? Well, the one, I mean, the one I, I go back to uh, all the time, because it because it worked when it was something that could totally not work was the slave collar mechanic mm. uh, in the wrong group that absolutely is going to fail miserably. It worked. So cool. All right, let's move forward. You did have buy-in, um, you had buy-in on that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but no, I don't use, a, I don't oftentimes use a lot of mechanical things to necessarily change it, but as we discuss these things and, and we talk more and more about what we would like to run, there are lots of things I have in mind uh, to want to run mechanically. But two things that kind of come to mind with it are uh, are great things uh, that I would love to see play with because it would ratchet up that tension and trepidation with something like 5e is uh, something like the, either the Dragonlance setting where clerics are not around. Like there's one maybe right uh so that that becomes stuff or we were talking earlier about tomb of annihilation uh because the way that they ratchet up that tension and take away all your goodies from your clerics is the death curse where you're dead you're dead that's it there's no coming back from that um so that 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 makes all of your choices matter a whole hell of a lot more when you're starting to enter those dungeons you know so I think, um, you know, for me, we've talked about kind of the, what I did in Call of Cthulhu mechanically, the few of the things I've done to drive that setting home. And some of that's built into the setting, but the way the, the way the sanity points play out, the way you, um, you know, the, the, the way that insanity, the, the DM takes control of the character for a minute, and the way that there are some things that, you know, weapons can't help you against. Those kinds of mechanics definitely help to drive home this setting of, you know, it's the cosmic horror setting where humanity is not the toughest thing. Your characters are not superheroes and they need to tread lightly. Some other things I've kind of used that way, you know, I do like the idea of using skill challenges to set home and to, to drive home environments for, for like the way Tony, like the way he used some skill challenges when we were climbing up the mountainside, the, the frozen mountain in, in storm King's thunder Doing that too often gets annoying to the players, but doing it a little bit, especially when they're into a new environment, it, it gives you a chance to, to 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 drive home that okay, no, this is a challenging thing. You need to to find your way here, to find your food, to survive. There's going to be a challenge to it. You need to roll some challenges. Now, sometimes DMs will find players have easy ways out. For example, the classic case of Goodberry. Like if you're in a survival setting where you're like, okay, the characters are going to have to hunt and hunt and forage for their food. And then one of the clerics has good berry and you realize, no, okay, now the cleric just makes a bunch of good berries in the morning. You each have a good berry. <laughs> you go. So here's the thing with that. That's fine. That's fine. You know, they, they took a character that can handle that, which is what you want them to do. You want them to figure it out that way, but make them do it. Make yeah. them spend the good berry, you know, make, you know, you know, make sure you mention it every morning when they wake up and that, you know, it may be every now and then kind of, kind of prick them with the idea that, yeah, you know, you're feeling fine, but your stomach's kind of rumbling. You're just running on good berries. Maybe you get the runs, you know, <laughs> maybe the characters, it's just a little flavor, nothing mechanical, but just mention, you know, make them do the mechanic and mention kind of maybe some of the side effects of it because the character isn't actually getting food, you know, whatever it is. 
I think this temptation sometimes as a DM can be, okay, well, they have a spell that gets around it. All right, I'm just going to stop paying attention to this. Make them do the spell. Make them, you know, or like say it's a navigation challenge and they've got like, you know, like, uh, like Phineas has. He has an imp that he can communicate with anywhere in the plane who can go fly ahead and find our way. Well, fine, make them do it. You know, it's not a problem that they have those abilities. Making them go through the motions of using those abilities helps to drive home that sense of setting. So just keep that in mind. Even if it feels like the characters have ways to ignore the problems you're throwing out there, that's not a bad thing. Because Let, letting them letting them use their tricks to solve the problem is kind of what the game's all about. So that's that's still a positive. It doesn't have to be a pain in the ass to be worthwhile. But in your point there with the good variant, that's a good point too. Because if unless it's something that's like a simple, doesn't really cost anything. If it's a spell, if it's a class ability, that costs them something that they might need later. So it does become a resource management thing. Uh, so those choices will start to matter a little bit, you know, later in the game where, oh, well, you use that first level spell slot and now you really need that last one, maybe. Yeah. It's that and it's also just getting them to repeat that they did it. Because that's how they remember they did it. Otherwise, it'd be otherwise yeah. that that feature of the environment slides away. People start ignoring it. You, you want to hit it. You want to mention it. You want to keep it in mind. In terms of skill challenges, I prefer not to ever use like I like the involved ones where I get everybody yeah. rolling some dice. So it's not just like you know Dave or your character, uh, you know, monologuing trying to solve a mystery here or find where they're going or climb. They're all, everyone's climbing, everyone's all involved on the ship, trying to keep it together, things like that. I prefer not doing more than two in a session, and if I do two in a session, I make them different styles. Maybe one is everyone's trying to keep the ship from falling apart, or they're yeah. all trying to navigate through a tunnel. Uh, or like I had one skill challenge in the Halloween game. Some of the guys were in the, the mine shaft mining. Some of them were keeping a lookout to make sure that nothing they were there were specters that were harassing them. They kept some of them away. Other ones were looking through the gems to see what was valuable ore. And then you could have another skill challenge, which is really a speaking challenge where you're trying to win somebody over and more of like a situation where Roderick's character had last game, where he's in that courtroom situation where he was trying to win over a group of those uh, giants um, in the Storm King's throne room. So, if you have to make them different so they stand apart and they're not like, oh, God, I'm trying to climb up a, a five foot hill. Here's eight. Here's eight nature checks and 11 athletics <laughs> checks. I mean, that's a great point, because it's kind of I was trying. it's a little bit like what I was trying to get to. Like you want to hit it enough so they remember it's there and that they have the flavor. You don't want to overdo it where it's a pain in the ass because then it gets tedious. And you you really don't want anything in the game to get tedious. And there's a balance to this. And like you said, Tony, you, you've kind of got it. You've kind of got the flow for it. You do a good job of throwing it in there enough that we feel, OK, we're in a mountain where we need to climb to survive or we need to all take action to, 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 to steer our ship and to keep it going straight and to keep it from, you know, for, you know to, to win the race. And you get everyone involved in it. So it's not just one person showing off where everyone else sits and you don't overdo it. You know, those seem to be those are really important aspects to this kind of flavorful you know, scene setting challenge. So, you know, guys, we've been going on. We, we've been going on about setting scene for a little while, uh, maybe even longer. <laughs> that, 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 that maybe we've over we've we've over detailed our scene. So why don't we get to, uh, you know, final thoughts and, you know, just what, what are the few things you would leave the audience with? You know, what's really important to you that you think they should take away when they're trying to set their own scene and really breathe some soul into their settings. Well, I would lead off with 
don't go too crazy, like I said with the descriptions, uh, three to five sentences is probably good, and I think Dave nailed it. They'll ask for more if they feel they need it. Mm. Uh, consider the setting in terms of how much time they're going to spend in it. If it's going to be brief, put it together, but don't go nuts. If this, they're going to be there every session and it's a more complicated setting, then the believability factor is going to be a harder note to hit. So put the more details in there because those details, it's what's going to bind it together. And you can do that by setting difficulty in terms of what do powerful NPCs look like in terms of level, magic availability, and the difficulty of the monsters in the surrounding area. <clears throat> I actually, I uh, when we were discussing that we were going to, we were going to, discuss this uh it may it just reminded me real quick of i was just recently reading uh the autobiography called being ram das about ram das yeah. and uh part of it he's talking about his early stuff with timothy leary about psychedelics and stuff and they were the first ones to really start talking about set and setting for when people are utilizing psychedelics and stuff and it just made me think of that like you're taking this trip so you know make the proper set and setting here so um i'm going to kind of say the some of the same things that tony did but in a different way because i'll bring it back to the idea of what are you playing and then that's going to change somewhat of of the type of set and setting and atmosphere that you need to create um and I will change Tony's lore tolerance idea to setting tolerance. So give them enough, like you said, three to five sentences. They will tell you what they find important or what they need. Because as Strunk and White told us in Elements of Style, omit unnecessary words. So there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. And, and, and for me, I, I'm going to uh, reiterate some of what Tony and Dave said. Um, you know, there is you, you want to pick your spots and you want to give just enough of that sense of the setting that people get it and they understand where they are and they feel where they are. But you can't overdo it. You can't make it tedious. So, you know, it's, um, you know, that, that be, be, be careful with the setting tolerance, Dave. I love what you said about, you know, let them tell you what they want to know more about. Because remember, you can start your, your description is just the start of their discovery. They're going to ask you more questions. So let them add, leave things open. They can ask you about and delve more into. And if they don't, well, maybe you mentioned that later and yeah, they, they learn, they should, you teach, you teach players how to play your games. The other thing is, you know, remember what any setting, any, any environment, any scene you're trying to set, come into it with, you know, a couple points or maybe just one point you really want them to remember. Like you want to remember it's a cold frozen tundra. You want them to remember that it's a big bustling metropolitan city. You want them to, to understand that this is a, that this is a company town where, you know, the people are just brought in to kind of do the work and, 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 you know, do the mining or the logging or whatever, like figure out how you convey that in the way you describe the scene and that'll go a long way to like, if you can just focus on that aspect of it and then add in the details they ask for, you're going to have a clearer sense of what is the setting we're in. than if you try to overwhelm with setting details, you know, those are the big things, you know, it's less is more get the one or two big things you want to get across, make sure you nail them and then move on and let the players tell you what they want to know about. So that's Love it. it. All if right. I had a lecture in peace for every time someone cut me off mid-description where I was trying to describe a room, and they're What's like, that? I look right the rug. I'm like, stop that. It's not materialized yet. <laughs> That's the thing, too. Yeah, for DMs, tell your players to shut the hell up until you're done describing whatever you're describing. <laughs> Make it three to five sentences and tell them you won't go past that, but shut the fuck up until I'm done. <laughs> 
You'll get your chance. I just wait. <laughs> the number of times it's been like, yeah, I'm trying to describe this monster. Someone's like, uh, I do this. Or, or does he I'm have sure. that? I will get to that. <laughs> like that meme, I have dark vision. Congratulations. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I don't or I'm great for, you know, Patty. Patty checks out the map. What else is in here? God damn it. <laughs> well, guys, that, thanks a lot for, for another episode of Three Wives DMs. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys. And thank you to all of you listening at home. We really appreciate the support. We appreciate it whenever you, you know, whether, whether you can share this with your friends, you can give us a five-star rating in your podcast platform, you can leave us a review. All that stuff helps us. So please, if you get a chance, uh, leave a kind word. We really appreciate it. We've been growing. You know, the growth's been great. And that's all really because of you. So, so thank you very much for all the support you've shown us. We'll see you next week on Three Wise DX. Bye.